Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time, a project of Jofa UK designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. This episode of Your Torah is sponsored by Yeshivat Maharat, the first institution to ordain women as Orthodox clergy and where Jofa UK's founder, Dina Brower, is one of 28 students. This June, she will be joining the 19 women already ordained and working in the field of Jewish communal leadership. Hello. My name is Claudia Marbach. I'm a fourth-year student at Yeshivat Maharat and expect to graduate with Smicha in June. The topic of this podcast is the tractate called Sukkah, which comes in the section about the holidays. As with Masechet Shabbat, there are scant details in the Torah about how to celebrate the holiday of Sukkot which follows closely every year on the heels of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Here are the directions in the Torah. You shall live in booths for seven days. All citizens of Israel shall live in booths, in order that future generations may know that I made the Israelite people live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I don't know about you, but that leaves me with a lot of questions. I thought that the children of Israel lived in tents in the desert, How high or wide do they have to be? What materials are they made out of? Then that's just a start. The other main mitzvah of the holiday stated in the Torah is the following. On the first day, you shall take the produce of hadar trees, branches of palm trees, bows of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before your Lord, your God, for seven days. Okay, palm trees, willows, I can identify. What is not clear is which trees are hadar, which means beautiful trees. And green leafy trees could be anything. This is what the project of the Mishnah is about. Figuring out what the Torah meant, putting it into bite-sized pieces that people could memorize and pass along. So, as I was saying, booths and branches are about all that we get from the Torah about Sukkot. Aside from the usual directions about what animals were supposed to be slaughtered in the temple to celebrate the occasion. So, what do we do? That, again, is the work of Masechet Sukkah, our topic for this podcast. The name for Sukkot in rabbinic literature is Hachag, the holiday, which is ironic since many more Jews know about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which, as I said, come right before it. The first two chapters of Masechet Sukkah have to do with the what, where, when, and how do we construct a sukkah. The Mishnah starts with fine details, such as how tall can a sukkah be? Answer, 20 amot, or 20 cubits high, which, if a cubit is about 18 inches, adds up to be around a three-story building. Pretty high sukkah. This is an important question not only because the rabbis liked rules to be clear, but it underscores a theological debate that is influencing the legal one. The rabbis understood that sukkah was a time when we've just spent a lot of time and energy repenting, promising that we will be better. Sukkot is almost a test of those Yom Kippur promises. Will I put God in my life? The rabbis say, show God that you will by going outside when it might be cold or rainy. Go out of your comfy house, live outside, and celebrate what God has given you. The rabbis concretized the theological idea with a debate about how temporary or permanent a sukkah should be. How many walls should it have? Answer, two and a bit. 
How long before the holiday can you build it? Preferably within 30 days of the holiday. What can it be made of? Natural materials, but not planks used to build houses. That blurs the line between temporary and permanent. How solid should the roof be? Well, it should have more shade than sun. In answering these questions, the Mishnah seems to have a good sense of humor. Not something you find in every Masechet. Actually, it's pretty rare, but the tractate of Sukkah is actually funny often. For example, if you are supposed to go out to show your reliance on God, then what does out mean? The Mishnah states, one who makes a Sukkah under a tree, it is as though he made it in his house. And so, it doesn't pass muster. That sukkah is out, but it's really in. Several Mishnahs discuss treehouse sukkahs. One sounds like Dr. Seuss. It asks, can you make it on a wagon? Can you make it on a ship? Can you make it in a camel? Etc. The Talmud that's based on this tractate goes even further. If you can make a sukkah on an animal, can you use an animal for a wall? Like say, an elephant? And here I quote from the Talmud, in the case where one establishes a wall with a tied elephant, everyone agrees that the sukkah is fit, even if the elephant dies and falls. Its carcass still has the height of ten handbreadths, the minimum height for a sukkah, which is about as high as a tabletop, and it is fit for the walls of sukkah. Where they disagree is in the case of an elephant that is not tied. This has to be intentionally funny, or at least tongue-in-cheek. In a discussion of how temporary is temporary, the Talmud here relates a story of two rabbis, Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Akiva. Rabban Gamliel said that a sukkah had to be sturdy enough to stand up wherever it was. Rabbi Akiva said that a sukkah had to only withstand the winds on land. They were having this debate during the holiday while on a ship at sea although the Talmud doesn't tell us where they were going and where they were coming from. Rabbi Akiva built his sukkah on deck. You can imagine Rabban Gamliel watching with a smirk. The next morning, no surprise, the sukkah is gone, swept out to sea. Rabban Gamliel says, So, Akiva, where's your sukkah now? Rabban Gamliel had a point. This tractate is not all fun and games. It allows that if you are sick or helping someone who is sick, you are exempt from eating in a sukkah. If you are traveling, especially to do a mitzvah, a commandment, you are also exempt, which establishes an important principle that one who is doing a positive commandment or mitzvah is exempt from another positive mitzvah. The tractate hammers out the details of a sukkah. It moves on to what we call the four species. In today's practice, as established in our tractate, we take an unopened palm branch, two myrtle branches, three willow branches, and an etrog, or citron which is a lovely yellow citrus fruit that has a wonderful smell. We bind the greens together. Together they are generally referred to as a lulav or palm and etrog. We then shake them in six directions, up, down, front, back, right, left, several times during the prayer services on Sukkot. We also parade around the synagogue in memory of the service in the temple that is described in our tractate. There are a couple of important Jewish values that are discussed in reference to the four species. For example, one should not do a mitzvah with an object that is stolen, here specifically a lulav. We don't believe in the Robin Hood model. Another is that one should not use dried up or damaged lulav or palm branches. 
the principle of hidur mitzvah, or only using the nicest objects you can afford to do a commandment, like using a beautiful kiddush cup for kiddush on Friday night. This principle is also the main theme of the movie called Ushbizin, which is all about Sukkot, which centers on getting the most beautiful etrog or citron. The tractate Sukkah also discusses the adaptation of Jewish life from a temple-based religion to the synagogue or home-based religion that we know today, which occurred after the destruction of the Second Temple, again in the year 70 CE. For example, the Mishnah tells us that initially, the lulav would be taken in the temple on each of the seven days of the festival, and in the countryside, meaning outside the temple, only on the first day. Once the temple was destroyed, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai established that the lulav should be taken everywhere on all seven days in commemoration of the temple. This was a huge change. We went from a religion of the priests in the temple to a religion that anyone could practice, and that's where we've been ever since. This was not necessarily a smooth transition, because another Mishnah here tells us how is the mitzvah to take a lulav done? They would walk their lulavim to the temple mountain, and the officers would receive the lulavim from the people and arrange them on top of the colonnade. The elders would place theirs in a special chamber. And then the officers would instruct the people to say, Anyone whom my lulav comes into his possession, it is thereby a gift. The following day, they would arise and come, and the officers would throw the lulavim before them, and they would grab them. People would hurt their fellows in the scramble, quite a fracas. And when the Beit Din saw that they would come to dangerous circumstances, in other words, being stabbed by lulavim, they established that each person should perform the mitzvah of taking the lulav in his own house. This brings us to another important idea. Owning your own set of four species. For the rabbi says, one does not fulfill the obligation on the first day of the festival by means of the lulav of one's neighbor or friend. And on the rest of the days of the festival, one fulfills one's obligation by means of the lulav of one's fellow. In other words, the ideal would be to own your own. But if you couldn't, then after the first day, you could borrow a friend's. There is evidence that once the Jews were dispersed in Northern Europe, they went to great lengths to obtain the four species. It was so important that the Empress Maria Theresa in the mid-18th century demanded a huge annual tax of 40,000 florins from the Jews of Bohemia for the right to import their atrogim. The celebration in the temple were, according to our tractate, amazing, if not a little out of control. Every day... The songs of praise, or Hallel, would be sung, a practice we still have today. Although in the temple they were accompanied by shofar blasts and flutes and lyres and cymbals, there were also prayers for rain and a special water-pouring ceremony, of which the sages said, Anyone who has never seen the rejoicing at the place of the water-drawing has never seen rejoicing in all of his days. Libation ceremony, or pouring the water every day, seems to have at times ended badly. Rabbi Yehuda said the libations would be done with one log, which is about a liter, on each of the eight days. And the people would say to the one doing the libation, raise up your hands, be careful where you pour it, because one time it happened that one priest poured the libations on his feet. And all the people were so incensed that they pelted him with their citrons. 
not an easy crowd to please. Towards the end of the holiday, the priests would take the willow branches and beat them, a practice that is still done today. However, I have never seen what the Mishnah tells us happens next. Immediately follow the beating of the willows, they would steal their lulavim and eat their citrons. Sort of what happens at bar mitzvahs when people throw candy at the bar mitzvah boy, and then all the kids run up to collect it. Another practice from the time of the temple that is described in our Mishnah is that a shofar was sounded just before Shabbat. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you will know that this practice is done today, but with sirens, not shofarot. So here's the Mishnah I would like to teach you today. It's from chapter 2, Mishnah 9. During the whole seven days of the festival, one makes his sukkah his permanent dwelling, and his house a temporary dwelling. Again, switching this usual idea and going out to live, really live in your sukkah, not just eat, but people slept in them and spent all their time in them. If rain fell, starting when is one permitted to clear out of a sukkah? So in Israel, the rain doesn't usually start at Sukkot, but sometimes it does. Though, in my experience, living in Massachusetts in America, it often rains on Sukkot. So how long do you have to stay in if it's raining? Well, the rabbis answer, when a stiff dish of food, like porridge, would be spoiled. The elders illustrated this with a parable. To what can matter be compared? To a slave who came to pour a goblet for his master, and the master poured a bowlful of water in his face. A strange metaphor. God asked us to go sit in the sukkah, but occasionally God's going to pour water in our face. We can try to show God we're relying on God, but for some reason, sometimes God doesn't necessarily want that. This Mishnah highlights the tension in the tractate. Try as we might to fulfill God's commandments. Sometimes we get it right, and then sometimes they go awry. But we have to keep on trying. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast, and keep learning. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK, in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying Your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjofa.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah. Thank you.